CD2 There was a whimper from the bursar. All the wizards turned towards him. His spoon landed on the floor with a small thud. It was wooden. The wizards had gently prevented him from having metal cutlery since what was now known as the unfortunate incident at dinner. Uh, gurgled the bursar, trying to push himself away from the table. Dried frog pills, said the Arch-Chancellor. Someone fish him out of his pocket. The wizards didn't rush this. You could find anything in a wizard's pocket. Peas, unreasonable things with legs, small experimental universes, anything. The reader in invisible writings craned to see what had unglued his colleague. Here, look at his porridge, he said. There was a perfect round depression in the oatmeal. Oh dear, another crop circle, said the dean. The wizards relaxed. Damn things turning up everywhere this year, said the Arch-Chancellor. He hadn't taken his hat off to eat the meal. This was because it was holding down a poultice of honey and horse manure and a small mouse-powered electrostatic generator he'd got those clever young fellas in the high-energy magic research building to knock together for him. Clever fellas they were. One day he might even understand half of what they were always gabbling on about. In the meantime, he'd keep his hat on. Particularly strong, too, said the dean. The gardener told me yesterday they're playing Mariel with the cabbages. I thought them things only turned up out in fields and things, said Ridcully. Perfectly normal natural phenomenon. If there is a suitably high flux level, the intercontinuum pressure can probably overcome quite a high base reality quotient, said the reader in invisible writings. The conversation stopped. Everyone turned to look at this most wretched and least senior member of the staff. The Arch-Chancellor glowered. "'I don't even want you to begin to start to explain that,' he said. "'You're probably going on about the universe being a rubber sheet with weights on it again, right?' "'Not exactly a—' "'And the word quantum is hurrying towards your lips again,' said Ridcully. "'Well, the—' "'And continuing you in too, I expect,' said Ridcully. "'The reader in Invisible Writings, a young wizard whose name was Ponder Stibbons, sighed deeply.' No, Arch-Chancellor, I was merely pointing out. It's not wormholes again, is it? Stibbons gave up. Using a metaphor in front of a man as unimaginative as Ridcully was like a red rag to a bull, was like putting something very annoying in front of someone who was annoyed by it. It was very hard being a reader in invisible writings. The study of invisible writings was a new discipline made available by the discovery of the bidirectional nature of library space. The thaumic mathematics are complex, but boil down to the fact that all books everywhere affect all other books. This is obvious. Books inspire other books written in the future and cite books written in the past. But the general theory of L-space suggests that in that case the contents of books as yet unwritten can be deduced from books now in existence. There's a special theory as well, but no one bothers with it much because it's self-evidently a load of marsh gas. "'I reckon you'd better come too,' said Ridcully. "'Me, Arch-Chancellor? "'Can't have you skulking around the place "'inventing millions of other universes "'that are too small to see "'and all the rest of that continue "'continuum stuff,' said Ridcully. "'Anyway, I shall need someone to carry my rods "'and my crossbow, um, my, my, my stuff,' he corrected himself. "'Stibbons stared at his plate. "'It was no good arguing.' 
What he'd really wanted out of life was to spend the next hundred years of it in the university eating big meals and not moving much in between them. He was a plump young man with a complexion the colour of something that lives under a rock. People were always telling him to make something of his life, and that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to make a bed of it. But, but, Arch-Chancellor, said the lecturer in recent runes, it's still too damn far. Nonsense, said Ridcully. They've got that new turnpike open all the way to Stowhellet now. Coaches every, every Wednesday, regular. Bah, sir. Oh, give him a dried frog pill, someone. Mr. Stibbons, if you could happen to find yourself in this universe for five minutes, go and arrange some tickets. There. All sorted out, right? Magrat woke up and knew she wasn't a witch anymore. The feeling just crept over her, as part of the normal stock-taking that anybody automatically does in the first seconds of emergence from the pit of dreams. Arms two, legs two, existential dread, 58%, randomised guilt, 94%, witchcraft level, zero. The point was, she couldn't remember ever being anything else. She'd always been a witch. Magrat Garlic, third witch. That was what she was. The soft one. She knew she'd never been much good at it. Oh, she could do some spells and do them quite well, and she was good at herbs. But she wasn't a witch in the bone, like the old ones. They made sure she knew it. Well, she'd just have to learn queening. At least she was the only one in Lancre. No one would be looking over her shoulder the whole time, saying things like, You ain't holding that scepter right. Right. Someone had stolen her clothes in the night. She got up in her nightshirt and hopped over the cold flagstones to the door. She was halfway there when it opened of its own accord. She recognised the small dark girl that came in, barely visible behind a stack of linen. Most people in Lancre knew everyone else. Millie Chillum? The linen bobbed a curtsy. Yes, sir. Magrat lifted up part of the stack. It's me, Magrat, she said. Hello. Yes, sir. Another bob. What's up with you, Millie? Yes, sir. Bob, bob. I said, it's me. You don't have to look at me like that. Yes, sir. The nervous bobbing continued. Magrat found her own knees beginning to jerk in sympathy, but as it were behind the beat, so that as she was bobbing down, she overtook the girl bobbing up. If you say yes, m again, it will go very hard with you, she managed as she went past. Yeah, uh, uh, right, your majesty. Mm. Faint light began to dawn. I'm not queen yet, Millie. And you've known me for twenty years, panted Magrat on the way up. Yes, am But you're going to be queen, so me ma'am told me I was to be respectful, said Millie, still curtsying nervously. Oh, well, all right then. Where are my clothes? Got em here, your pre-majesty. They're not mine. And please stop going up and down all the time. I feel a bit sick. The king ordered him from Stowhelet, special, ma'am. Did he, eh? How long ago? Dunno, ma'am. He knew I was coming home, thought Magrat. How? What's going on here? There was a good deal more lace than Magrat was used to, but that was, as it were, the icing on the cake. Magrat normally wore a simple dress with not much underneath it except Magrat. Ladies of quality couldn't get away with that kind of thing. Millie had been provided with a sort of technical diagram, but it wasn't much help. They studied it for some time. This is a standard queen outfit, then? 
couldn't say, ma'am. I think His Majesty just sent him a lot of money and said to send you everything. They spread out the bits on the floor. Is this the pantoffle? Outside, on the battlements, the guard changed. In fact, he changed into his gardening apron and went off to hoe the beans. Inside, there was considerable sartorial discussion. I think you've got it the wrong way up, ma'am. Which bit's the farthing gale? Says here, insert tabby A into slotty B. I can't find slotty B. These are like saddlebags. I'm not wearing these. And this thing... As a, it's a rough man. Um, they're all the rages still, well, it, my brother says. You mean they make people angry? And what's this? Brocade, I think. It's like cardboard. Do I have to wear this sort of thing every day? Don't know, I'm sure, ma'am. But Verence just trots around in leather gaiters and an old jacket. Ah, but you're queen. Queens can't do that sort of thing. Everyone knows that, ma'am. It's all right for kings to go wandering around with their ass off out the trousers. She rammed her hand over her mouth. It's all right, said Magret. I'm sure even kings have, have tops to their legs just like everyone else. Just go on with what you were saying. Millie had gone bright red. I mean, I mean, I mean, queens has got to be ladylike, she managed. The king got books about it, Eddie Ketty and stuff. Magrat surveyed herself critically in the mirror. It really suits you. You're soon got to be majesty, said Millie. Magrat turned this way and that. My hair's a mess, she said after a while. Please, ma'am, the king said he's having a hairdresser come all the way from Aunt Moorpork, ma'am, for, for the wedding. Magrat patted a tress into place. It was beginning to dawn on her that being a queen was a whole new life. My word, she said, and what happens now? Dunno, ma'am. What's the king doing? Oh, he had breakfast early and buggered off over the slice to show old Mucklow how to breed his pigs out of a book. So, so what do I do? What's my job? Millie looked puzzled, although this did not involve much of a change in her general expression. Dunno, ma'am. Er, uh, raining, I suppose. Walking around in the garden, holding court, doing tapestry, that's very popular among young queens, and then er... Uh, Ah, uh, later on there's the royal succession. At the moment, said Magrat firmly, we'll have a go at the tapestry. Ridcully was having difficulty with the librarian. I happen to be your arch-chancellor, sir. Ooh, you'll like it up there. Fresh air, bags of trees, more woods than you can shake a stick at. Ooh. Come down this minute. Ooh. The books will be quite safe here during the holidays. Good grief, it's hard enough to get students to come in here at the best of times. Ooh. Ridcully glared at the librarian, who was hanging by his toes from the top shelf of parazoology BA to MN. Oh, well, he said, his voice suddenly low and cunning. It's a great shame in the circumstances. They've got a pretty good library in Lancre Castle, I heard. Well, they call it a library. It's just a lot of old books. Never had a, a catalogue near them, apparently. Ooh, thousands of books. Someone told me there's incunables, too. Shame, really, you not wanting to see them. 
Ridcully's voice could have greased Axel's. Ooh. But I can see your mind is quite made up, so I shall be going. Farewell. Ridcully paused outside the library door, counting under his breath. He'd reached three when the librarian knuckled through at high speed, caught by the incunables. So that'll be four tickets, then, said Ridcully. Granny Weatherwax set about finding out what had been happening around the stones in her own distinctive way. People underestimate bees. Granny Weatherwax didn't. She had half a dozen hives of them, and knew, for example, there is no such creature as an individual bee. But there is such a creature as a swarm, whose component cells are just a bit more mobile than those of, say, the common whelk. Swarms see everything and sense a lot more, and they can remember things for years, although their memory tends to be external and built out of wax. A honeycomb is a hive's memory. The placement of egg cells, pollen cells, queen cells, honey cells, different types of honey, are all part of the memory array. And then there are the big fat drones. People think all they do is hang around the hive all year, waiting for those few brief moments when the queen even notices their existence, but that doesn't explain why they've got more sense organs than the roof of the CIA building. Granny didn't really keep bees. She took some old wax every year for candles and the occasional pound of honey that the hives felt they could spare, but mainly she had them for someone to talk to. For the first time since she'd returned home, she went to the hives and stared. Bees were boiling out of the entrances. The thrum of wings filled the normally calm little patch behind the raspberry bushes. Brown bodies zipped through the air like horizontal hail. She wished she knew why. Bees were her one failure. There wasn't a mind in Lankra she couldn't borrow. She could even see the world through the eyes of earthworms. It was largely dark, but a swarm, a mind made up of thousands of mobile parts, was beyond her. It was the toughest test of all. She'd tried over and over again to ride on one, to see the world through ten thousand pairs of multifaceted eyes all at once, and all she'd ever got was a migraine and an inclination to make love to flowers. But you could tell a lot from just watching bees, the activity, the direction, the way the guard bees acted. They were acting extremely worried. So she went for a lie-down, as only Granny Weatherwax knew how. Nanny Og tried a different way, which didn't have much to do with witchcraft, but did have a lot to do with her general oggishness. She sat for a while in her spotless kitchen, drinking rum and smoking her foul pipe, and staring at the paintings on the wall. They had been done by her youngest grandchildren in a dozen shades of mud, most of them of blobby stick figures with the word Gran blobbily blobbed in underneath in muddy blobby letters. In front of her, the cat Grebo, glad to be home again, lay on his back with all four paws in the air, doing his celebrated something-found-in-the-gutter impersonation. Finally, Nanny got up and ambled thoughtfully down to Jason Ogg's smithy. A smithy always occupied an important position in the villages, doing the duty of town hall, meeting room, and general clearing house for gossip. Several men were lounging around in it now, filling in time between the normal Lankra occupations of poaching and watching the women do the work. "'Jason, Og, I want a word with you.' The smithy emptied like magic. It was probably something in Nanny Og's tone of voice. But Nanny reached out and grabbed one man by the arm as he tried to go past at a sort of stumbling crouch. "'I'm glad I've run into you, Mr. Quarney,' she said. "'Don't rush off. Store doing all right, is it?' 
Lancra's only storekeeper gave her the look a three-legged mouse gives an athletic cat. Nevertheless, he tried. Oh, terrible bad. Terrible bad business is right now, Mrs. Ock. Same as normal, eh? Mr. Quarney's expression was pleading. He knew he wasn't going to get out without something. He just wanted to know what it was. Well, now, said Nanny, you know the widow Scrope lives over in Slice? Quarney's mouth opened. She's not a widow, he said. She bet you half a dollar, said Nanny. Quarney's mouth stayed open, and around it the rest of his face recomposed itself in an expression of fascinated horror. So, she's to be allowed credit, right, until she gets the farm on its feet, said Nanny in the silence. Quarney nodded mutely. That goes for the rest of you men listing outside the door, said Nanny, raising her voice. Dropping a cut of meat on her doorstep once a week wouldn't come amiss, eh? And she'll probably want extra help come harvest. I knows I can depend on you all. Now off you go. They ran for it, leaving Nanny Og standing triumphantly in the doorway. Jason Og looked at her hopelessly, a fifteen-stone man reduced to a four-year-old boy. Jason? I've got to do this bit of brazing for old... So, said Nanny, ignoring him, what's been happening in these parts while we've been away, my lad? Jason poked at the fire distractedly with an iron bar. Oh, <laughs> well, well, us had a big whirlwind on Ogswatch night, and one of Mother Peason's hens laid the same egg three times, and old poor Chick's cow gave birth to a seven-headed snake, <laughs> and there was a raid of frogs over in Slice. Being pretty normal, then, said Nanny Og. She refilled her pipe in a casual but meaningful way. "'Oh, uh, very quiet, really,' said Jason. He pulled the bar out of the fire, laid it on the anvil and raised his hammer. "'I'll find out sooner or later, you know,' said Nanny Og. Jason didn't turn his head, but his hammer stopped in midair. "'I always does, you know,' said Nanny Og. The iron cooled from the colour of fresh straw to bright red. "'You knows you always feels better for telling your old mum,' said Nanny Og. "'The iron cooled from red to spitting black, "'but Jason, used all day to the searing heat of a forge, "'seemed to be uncomfortably warm. "'I should beat it up before it gets cold,' said Nanny Og. "'It weren't my fault, mum. How could I stop em? "'Nanny sat back in the chair, smiling happily. "'What them would these be, my son?' "'That young Diamanda, and that Perdita, and that girl with the red hair from over in Badass, and them others. "'I says to old Peason, I says, you'd have something to say. "'I told them mistress Weatherwax'd get her nicket. "'Would definitely be sarcastic when she found out,' said Jason. "'But they just laughs. "'They said they could teach themselves witching.' "'Nanny nodded.' Actually, they were quite right. You could teach yourself witchcraft, but both the teacher and the pupil had to be the right kind of person. Dear Manda, she said, don't recall the name. Really, she's Lucy Tockley, said Jason. She says Dear Manda is more, uh, more witchy. Oh, the one that wears the big floppy felt hat? Yes, Mum. She's the one that paints her nails black, too. Yes, Mum. "'Old Tockley sent her off to school, didn't he? "'Yes, Mum. "'She came back while you was gone.' "'Ah!' "'Nanny Og lit her pipe from the forge. "'Floppy hat and black nails and education. "'Oh, dear. "'How many of these girls are there, then?' she said. Uh, "'About, uh, 
Half a dozen. But I'm good at it, Mum. Yeah? And it ain't as if they've been doing anything bad. Nanny Og stared reflectively at the glow in the forge. There was a bottomless quality to Nanny Og's silences, and also a certain directional component. Jason was quite clear that the silence was being aimed at him. He always fell for it. He tried to fill it up. And and that dear Amanda's been properly educated, he said. She knows some lovely words. Silence. And I know you've always said there weren't enough young girls interested in learning which in these days, said Jason. He removed the iron bar and hit it a few times for the look of the thing. More silence flowed in Jason's direction. There goes up and dances in the mountains every full moon. Nanny Og removed her pipe and inspected the bowl carefully. People do say, <laughs> said Jason, lowering his voice, that they dances in the old together. Altogether what? said Nanny Og. You know, Mum, in the nude. Cool. There's a thing. Anyone see where they go? Nah. Weaver the Thatcher says they always give him the slip. Jason? Yes, Mum. They been dancing round the stones. Jason hit his thumb. There were a number of gods in the mountains and forests of Lancre. One of them was known as Hearn the Hunted. He was a god of the chase and the hunt, more or less. Most gods are created and sustained by belief and hope. Hunters danced in animal skins and created gods of the chase, who tended to be hearty and boisterous with the tact of a tidal wave. But they are not the only gods of hunting. The prey has an occult voice too, as the blood pounds and the hounds bay. Hearn was the god of the chaste and the hunted, and all small animals whose ultimate destiny is to be an abrupt, damp squeak. He was about three feet high, with rabbit ears and very small horns, but he did have an extremely good turn of speed, and was using it to the full as he tore madly through the woods. They're coming! They're coming! They're all coming back! Who are? said Jason Og. He was holding his thumb in the water trough. Nanny Og sighed. Them! she said. You know, them. We ain't certain, but who's them? Nanny hesitated. There were some things you didn't tell ordinary people. On the other hand, Jason was a blacksmith, which meant he wasn't ordinary. Blacksmiths had to keep secrets. And he was family. Nanny Og had had an adventurous youth and wasn't very good at counting, but she was pretty certain he was her son. You see, she said, waving her hands vaguely, them stones, the dancers, see, in the old days, see, once upon a time... She stopped and tried again to explain the essentially fractal nature of reality. Like, there's some places that are thinner than others, where the old doorways used to be. Well, not doorways. Never exactly understood it myself. Not doorways as such, more places where the world is thinner. Anyway, the thing is, the dancers are a kind of fence. We, well, when I say we, I mean thousands of years ago. I mean, but they're not just stones, they're some kind of thunderbolt iron. But there's things like tides, only not with water. It's when worlds get closer together and you can nearly step between them. Anyway, if people have been hanging around the stones, playing around, then... They'll be back if we're not careful. What, they? That's the old trouble, said Nanny miserably. If I tells you, you'll get it all wrong. They lives on the other side of the dancers. Her son stared at her. 
Then a faint grin of realisation wandered across his face. Ah, he said, I knows. I heard them wizards down in Ark is always accidentally ripping holes in this fabric of reality they got down there. And you get them horrible things coming out of the dungeon dimensions. Huge buggers with dozens of eyeballs and more legs than a Morris team. He gripped his number five hammer. Don't you worry, Mum. If they start popping out here, we'll soon... No, it ain't like that, said Nanny. Those live outside. But them lives over there. Jason looked completely lost. Nanny shrugged. She'd have to tell someone sooner or later. The lords and ladies, she said. Who are they? Nanny looked around. But after all, this was a forge. There had been a forge here long before there was a castle, long before there was even a kingdom. There were horseshoes everywhere. Iron had entered the very walls. It wasn't just a place of iron. It was a place where iron died and was reborn. If you couldn't speak the words here, you couldn't speak them anywhere. Even so, she'd rather not. You know, she said, the fair folk, the gentry, the shining ones, the star people, you know. What? Nanny put her hand on the anvil just in case and said the word. Jason's frown very gently cleared at about the same speed as a sunrise. Them, he said. But aren't they nice and, uh, see, said Nanny, I told you you'd get it wrong. How much, said Ridcully. The coachman shrugged. Take it or leave it, he said. I'm sorry, sir, said Ponder Stibbons. It's the only coach. Fifty dollars each is, is, is daylight robbery. No, said the coachman patiently. Daylight robbery, he said in the authoritative tones of the experienced, is when someone steps out into the road with an arrow pointing at us and then all his friends swings down from the rocks and trees and take away all our money and things. And then there's nighttime robbery, which is like daytime robbery, except they set fire to the coach so they can see what they're about. Twilight robbery? Now, your basic twilight robbery is... Are you saying, said Ridcully, that getting robbed is included in the price? Bandit's Guild, said the coachman, $40 per Edsy is a kind of flat rate. What happens if we, if we don't pay it, said Ridcully? You end up flat. The wizards went into a huddle. We've got $150, said Ridcully. We can't get any more out of the safe because the bursar ate the key yesterday. Can I try an idea, sir? said Ponder. All right. Ponder gave the coachman a bright smile. Pets travel free, he suggested. Ook! Nanny Og's broomstick skimmed a few feet above the forest paths, cornering so fast that her boots scraped through the leaves. She leapt off at Granny Weatherwax's cottage so quickly that she didn't switch it off and kept it going until it stuck in the privy. The door was open. Cooey! Nanny glanced into the scullery and then thumped up the small narrow staircase. Granny Weatherwax was stretched rigid on her bed. Her face was grey. Her skin was cold. People had discovered her like this before, and it always caused embarrassment. So now she reassured visitors but tempted fate by always holding, in her rigid hands, a small handwritten sign which read, 
I ain't dead. The window was propped open with a piece of wood. Ah, oh, said Nanny, far more for her own benefit than for anyone else's. I sees you're out. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll just put the kettle on, shall I, and wait till you comes back? Esme's skill at borrowing unnerved her. It was all very well entering the minds of animals and such, but too many witches had never come back. For several years, Nanny had put out lumps of fat and bacon rind for a blue tit that she was sure was old Granny Postolute, who'd gone out borrowing one day and never come back. Insofar as a witch could consider things uncanny, Nanny Og considered it uncanny. She went back down to the scullery and lowered a bucket down the well, remembering to fish the newts out this time before she boiled the kettle. Then she watched the garden. After a while, a small shape flitted across it, heading for the upstairs window. Nanny poured out the tea. She carefully took one spoonful of sugar out of the sugar basin, tipped the rest of the sugar into her cup, put the spoonful back in the basin, put both cups on a tray, and climbed the stairs. Granny Weatherwax was sitting up in her bed. Nanny looked around. There was a large bat hanging upside down from a beam. Granny Weatherwax rubbed her ears. "'Shove the pow under it, will you, Githa?' she mumbled. "'They're a devil for excusing themselves on the carpet.' Nanny unearthed the shyest article of Granny Weatherwax's bedroom crockery and moved it across the rug with her foot. "'I brought you a cup of tea,' she said. "'Good job, too. Mouth tastes of moths,' said Granny. "'Thought you did owls at night,' said Nanny. "'Yeah, but you ends up for days trying to twist your head right round,' said Granny. "'At least bats always faces the same way. "'Tried rabbits first off, but you know what they are for remembering things. "'Anyway, you know what they thinks about the whole time. "'They're famous for it.' "'Grass?' "'Right. "'Find out anything?' said Nanny. "'Half a dozen people have been going up there every full moon,' said Granny. "'Girls, by the shape of them. "'You only see silhouettes with bats.' "'You've done well there,' said Nanny, carefully. "'Girls from round here, you reckon?' "'Got to be. They ain't using broomsticks.' Nanny Og sighed. "'There's Agnes Knit, old Threepenny's daughter,' she said, "'and the Tockley girl, and some others.' Granny Weatherwax looked at her with her mouth open. "'I asked our Jason,' she said. "'Sorry.' The bat burped. Granny genteelly covered her hand with her mouth. "'I'm a silly old fool, ain't I?' she said after a while. "'No, no,' said Nanny. "'Borrowing's a real skill. You're really good at it.' "'Prideful, that's what I am. "'Once upon a time I'd have thought of asking people too "'instead of fooling around being a bat.' "'Our Jason wouldn't have told you. "'He only told me because I would have made his life a living hell if he didn't,' said Nanny Og. "'That's what a mother's for.' "'I'm losing my touch. That's what it is. Getting old, Gither.' "'You're as old as you feel, that's what I always say.' "'That's what I mean!' Nanny Og looked worried. "'Supposing Magrat had been here,' said Granny. "'She'd see me being daft.' "'Well, she's safe in the castle,' said Nanny, "'learning how to be queen.' "'At least the thing about queening,' said Granny, "'is that no one notices if you're doing it wrong. "'It has to be right, cos it's you doing it.' Hmm, funny royalty,' said Nanny. "'It's like magic. "'You take some girl with a bum like two pigs in a blanket "'and a head full of air, "'and then she marries a king or a prince or someone, "'and suddenly she's this radiant right royal princess.' "'It's a funny old world.' 
I ain't going to kowtow to her mind, said Granny. You never kowtow to anyone anyway, said Nanny Og patiently. You never bow to the old king. You barely gives young Verence a nod. You never kowtows to anyone ever anyway. That's right, said Granny. That's part of being a witch, that is. Nanny relaxed a bit. Granny being an old woman made her uneasy. Granny in her normal state of barely controlled anger was far more her old self. Granny stood up. Ah, old Tockley's girl, eh? That's right. Her mother was a keyball, wasn't she? Fine woman, as I recall. Yeah, but when she died, the old man sent her off to Stolat to school. Hmm, don't hold with schools, said Granny Weatherwax. They gets in the way of education. All them books. Books! What good are they? There's too much reading these days. We never had time to read when we was young, I know that. We were too busy making our own entertainment. Right. Come on, we ain't got much time. What do you mean? It's not just the girls. There's something out there, too. Some kind of... mind moving around. Granny shivered. She'd been aware of it in the same way that a skilled hunter moving through the hills is aware of another hunter. By the silences, where there should have been noise, by the trampling of a stem, by the anger of the bees. Nanny Og had never liked the idea of borrowing, and Magrat had always refused to even give it a try. The old witches on the other side of the mountain had too much trouble with inconvenient in-body experiences to cope with the out-of-body kind, so Granny was used to having the mental dimension to herself. There was a mind moving around in the kingdom, and Granny Weatherwax didn't understand it. She borrowed. You had to be careful. It was like a drug. You could ride the minds of animals and birds, but never bees, steering them gently, seeing through their eyes. Granny Weatherwax had many times flicked through the channels of consciousness around her. It was to her part of the heart of witchcraft, to see through other eyes. Through the eyes of gnats, seeing the slow patterns of time in the fast pattern of one day, their minds travelling rapidly as lightning. To listen with the body of a beetle, so that the world is a three-dimensional pattern of vibrations. To see with the nose of a dog, all smells now colours. But there was a price. No one asked you to pay it, but the very absence of demand was a moral obligation. You tended not to swat. You dug lightly. You fed the dog. You paid. You cared. Not because it was kind or good, but because it was right. You left nothing but memories. You took nothing but experience. But this other roving intelligence, it'd go in and out of another mind like a chainsaw, taking, taking, taking. She could sense the shape of it, the predatory shape, all cruelty and cool unkindness. A mind full of intelligence that'd use other living things and hurt them because it was fun. She could put a name to a mind like that. Elf. Branches thrashed high in the trees. Granny and Nanny strode through the forest. At least Granny Weatherwax strode. Nanny Og scurried. The lords and ladies are trying to find a way, said Granny. And there's something else. Something's already come through. Some kind of animal from the other side. Scrope chased a deer into the circle and the thing must have been there. And they always used to say something can come through if something goes the other way. What thing? You know what a bat's eyesight is like? Just a big shape is all it saw. Something killed old Scrope. It's still around. Not an... not one of the lords and ladies, said Granny. 
but something from elf. That place. Nanny looked at the shadows. There are a lot of shadows in a forest at night. Ain't you scared? She said. Granny cracked her knuckles. No, but I hope it is. Oh, it's true what they say. You're a prideful one, Esmeralda Weatherwax. Who says that? Well, well, you did, just now. I wasn't feeling well. Other people would probably say I wasn't myself, but Granny Weatherwax didn't have anyone else to be. The two witches hurried on through the gale. From the shelter of a thorn thicket, the unicorn watched them go. Diamanda Tockley did indeed wear a floppy black velvet hat. It had a veil, too. Perdita Knit, who had once merely been Agnes Knit before she got witchcraft, wore a black hat with a veil, too, because Diamanda did. Both of them were seventeen, and she wished she was naturally skinny like Diamanda, but if you can't be skinny, you can at least look unhealthy. So she wore so much thick white makeup in order to conceal her naturally rosy complexion that if she turned round suddenly, her face would probably end up on the back of her head. They'd done the raising of the cone of power and some candle magic and some scrying. Now Diamanda was showing them how to do the cards. She said they contained the distilled wisdom of the ancients. Perdita had found herself treacherously wondering who these ancients were. They clearly weren't the same as old people who were stupid, Diamanda said, but she wasn't quite clear why they were wiser than, say, modern people. Also, she didn't understand what the feminine principle was, and she wasn't too clear about this inner self business. She was coming to suspect that she didn't have one. And she wished she could do her eyes like Diamanda did. And she wished she could wear heels like Diamanda did. Amanita Device had told her that Diamanda slept in a real coffin. She wished she had the nerve to have a dagger and skull tattoo on her arm like Amanita did, even if it was only in ordinary ink and she had to wash it off every night in case her mother saw it. A tiny, nasty voice from Perdita's inner self suggested that Amanita wasn't a good choice of a name. Or Perdita, for that matter. And it said that maybe Perdita shouldn't meddle with things she didn't understand. The trouble was, she knew that this meant nearly everything. She wished she could wear black lace like Diamanda did. Diamanda got results. Perdita wouldn't have believed it. She'd always known about witches, of course. They were old women who dressed like crows except for Magrat Garlic, who was frankly mental, and always looked as if she was going to burst into tears. Perdita remembered Magrat bringing a guitar to a Hogswatch night party once and singing a wobbly folk song with her eyes shut in a way that suggested that she really believed in them. She hadn't been able to play, but this was all right because she couldn't sing either. People had applauded because, well, what else could you do? But Diamanda had read books. She knew about stuff. Raising power at the stones, for one thing. It really worked. Currently, she was showing them the cards. The wind had got up again tonight. It rattled the shutters and made soot fall down the chimney. It seemed to Perdita that it had blown all the shadows into the corners of the room. Are you paying attention, sister? said Diamanda coldly. That was another thing. You had to call one another sister out of uh, fraternity. Yes, Diamanda, she said meekly. This is the moon, Diamanda repeated, for those who weren't paying attention. She held up the card. And what do we see here? You, Muscara. Um, um, it's got a picture of the moon on it, said Muscara, nay Susan, in a hopeful voice. Of course it's not the moon. 
It's a non-mimetic convention, not tied to a conventional referencing system. Actually, said Diamanda, Oh. A gust rocked the cottage. The door burst open and slammed back against the wall, giving a glimpse of cloud-racked sky in which a non-mimetic convention was showing a crescent. Diamanda waved a hand. There was a brief flash of octarine light. The door jerked shut. Diamanda smiled in what Perdita thought of as her cool, knowing way. She placed the card on the black velvet cloth in front of her. Perdita looked at it gloomily. It was all very pretty. The cards were coloured like little pasteboard jewels, and they had interesting names. But that little traitor voice whispered, "'How the hell can they know what the future holds? Cardboard isn't very bright.' On the other hand, the coven was helping people, more or less, raising power and all that sort of thing. Oh, dear, supposing she asks me. Perdita realised that she was feeling worried. Something was wrong. It had just gone wrong. She didn't know what it was, but it had gone wrong now. She looked up. Blessings be upon this house, said Granny Weatherwax. In much the same tone of voice, people have said, Eat hot lead Kincaid, and I expect you're wondering after all that excitement whether I've got any balloons and lampshades left. Diamanda's mouth dropped open. Here, you're doing that wrong. You don't want to muck about with the hand like that, said Nanny Og, helpfully, looking over her shoulder. You've got a double onion there. Who are you? Suddenly they were there. Perdita thought, one minute the shadows, the next minute they were there, solid as anything. What's all the chalk on the floor, then? said Nanny Og. You've got all chalk on the floor, and even writing. Not that I've got anything against evens, she added. She appeared to think about it. I'm practically one. She added further, but I don't write on the floor. What do you want to write all on the floor for? She nudged Perdita. You'll never get the chalk out, she said. It gets right into the grain. Um, it's, it's a magic circle, said Perdita. Um, hello, Mrs. Og. Um, it's to keep bad influences away. Granny Weatherwax leaned forward slightly. Tell me, dear, she said to Diamanda. Do you think it's working? She leaned further forward. Diamanda leaned backwards, and then slowly leaned forward again. They ended up nose to nose. Who's this? said Diamanda out of the corner of her mouth. Um, it's Granny Weatherwax, said Perdita. Um, she's a witch. Um, what level? said Diamanda. Nanny Og looked around for something to hide behind. Granny Weatherwax's eyebrow twitched. Levels, eh? she said. Well, I suppose I'm level one. Just starting, said Diamanda. Oh, dear. Tell you what, said Nanny Og quietly to Perdita. If we was to turn the table over, we could probably hide behind it, no problem. But to herself she was thinking... Esme can never resist a challenge. None of us can. You ain't a witch if you ain't got self-confidence. But we're not getting any younger. It's like being a hired sword fighter, being a top witch. You think you're good, but you know there's got to be someone younger practising every day, polishing up their craft. And one day you're walking down the road and you hear this voice behind you saying, Go for your toad! Or similar. Even for Esme, sooner or later she'll come up against someone faster on the craftiness than she is. Oh, yes, 
said Granny quietly. Just starting. Every day, just starting. Nanny Og thought. But it won't be today. You stupid old woman, said Diamanda. You don't frighten me. Oh, yes, I know all about the way you old ones frighten superstitious peasants. Actually, muttering and squinting, it's all in the mind. Simple psychology. It's not real witchcraft. I'll, uh, I'll just go into the scullery and see if I can uh, fill any buckets with water, shall I? said Nanny Og to no one in particular. I expect you know all about witchcraft, said Granny Weatherwax. I'm studying, yes, said Diamanda. Nanny Og realised that she had removed her own hat and was biting nervously at the brim. I expect you're really good at it, said Granny Weatherwax. Uh, quite good, said Diamanda. Show me. She is good, thought Nanny Og. She's been facing down Esme's stare for more than a minute. Even snakes generally give up after a minute. If a fly had darted through the few inches of space between their stares, it would have flashed into flame in the air. I learned my craft from Nanny Gripes, said Granny Weatherwax, who learned it from Goody Haggerty, who got it from Nana Plum, who was taught by Black Alice, who... So what you're saying is said Diamanda, loading the words into the sentence like cartridges in a chamber, that no one has actually learned anything new. The silence that followed was broken by Nanny Og saying, Bugger, I've bitten right through the brim, right through. I see, said Granny Weatherwax. Look, said Nanny Og hurriedly, nudging the trembling perdita, right through the lining and everything. Two dollars and curing his pig, that cost me. That's two dollars and a pig cure I shan't see again in a hurry. So you can just go away, old woman, said Diamanda. But we ought to meet again, said Granny Weatherwax. The old witch and the young witch weighed one another up. Midnight, said Diamanda. Midnight? Nothing special about midnight. Practically anyone can be a witch at midnight, said Granny Weatherwax. How about noon? Certainly. What are we fighting for, said Diamanda. Fighting? We ain't fighting. We're just showing each other what we can do. Friendly-like, said Granny Weatherwax. She stood up. "'I'd better be going,' she said. "'Us old people need our sleep. You know how it is.' "'And what does the winner get?' said Diamanda. "'There was just a trace of uncertainty in her voice now. "'It was very faint. "'On the Richter scale of doubt, it was probably no more than a plastic teacup five miles away "'falling off a low shelf onto a carpet. "'But it was there.' "'Oh, the winner gets to win,' said Granny Weatherwax.' That's what it's all about. Don't bother to see us out. You didn't see us in. The door slammed back. Simple psychokinesis, said Diamanda. Oh, well, that's all right then, said Granny Weatherwax, disappearing into the night. Explains it all, that does. There used to be such simple directions back in the days before they invented parallel universes. Up and down... Right and left, backward and forward, past and future. 
but normal directions don't work in the multiverse, which has far too many dimensions for anyone to find their way, so new ones have to be invented so that the way can be found, like east of the sun, west of the moon, or behind the north wind, or at the back of beyond, or there and back again, or beyond the fields we know. And sometimes there's a shortcut, a door, or a gate, some standing stones, a tree cleft by lightning, a filing cabinet, maybe just a spot on some moorland somewhere, a place where there is very nearly here, nearly but not quite. There's enough leakage to make pendulums swing and psychics get nasty headaches, to give a house a reputation for being haunted, to make the occasional pot hurl across a room. There's enough leakage to make the drones fly guard. Oh yes, the drones. There are things called drone assemblies. Sometimes on fine summer days, the drones from hives for miles around will congregate in some spot and fly circles in the air, buzzing like tiny early warning systems, which is what they are. Bees are sensible. It's a human word. But bees are creatures of order, and programmed into their very genes is a hatred of chaos. If some people once knew where such a spot was, if they had experience of what happens when here and there become entangled, then they might, if they knew how, mark such a spot with certain stones, in the hope that enough daft buggers would take it as a warning and keep away. Well, what do you think? said Granny as the witches hurried home. The little fat quiet one's got a bit of natural talent, said Nanny Og. I could feel it. The rest of them are just along for the excitement, to my mind, playing at witches. You know, ooja boards and cards and wearing black lace gloves with no fingers to them and paddling with the occult. I don't hold with paddling with the occult, said Granny firmly. Once you start paddling with the occult, you start believing in spirits. And when you start believing in spirits, you start believing in demons. And then before you know where you are, you're believing in gods. And then you're in trouble. But all them things exist, said Nanny Og. That's no call to go around believing in them. It only encourages them. Granny Weatherwax slowed to a walk. What about her, she said. What exactly about her do you mean? You felt the power there? Oh, yeah, made my hair stand on end. Someone gave it to her, and I know who. Just a slip of a girl with a head full of wet ideas out of books, and suddenly she's got the power and don't know how to deal with it. Cards. Candles. That's not witchcraft, that's just party games. Paddling with the occult. Did you see she'd got black fingernails? Well, mine ain't so clean. I mean painted. I used to paint my toenails red when I was young, said Nanny, wistfully. Toenails is different. So's red, anyway, said Granny. You only did it to appear alluring. It worked, too. <laughs> they walked along in silence for a bit. I felt a lot of power there, Nanny Og said, eventually. Yes, I know. A lot? Yes. I'm not saying you couldn't beat her said Nanny quickly. I'm not saying that, but I don't reckon I could, and it seemed to me it'd raise a bit of sweat on even you. You'll have to hurt her to beat her. I'm losing my judgment, aren't I? Oh, I wouldn't. She riled me, Githa. Couldn't help myself. Now I've got to duel with a girl of seventeen, and if I wins, I'm a wicked bully and old witch, and if I loses... She kicked up a drift of old leaves. Can't stop myself, that's my trouble. 
Nanny Og said nothing, and I loses me temper over the least little... Yes, but I hadn't finished talking. Sorry, Esme. A bat fluttered by. Granny nodded to it. Ah, uh, heard how Magrat's getting along, she said, in a tone of voice which forced casualness embraced like a corset. Settling in fine, our Sean says. Right. They reached a crossroads. The white dust glowed very faintly in the moonlight. One way led into Lancre, where Nanny Og lived. Another eventually got lost in the forest, became a footpath, then a track, and eventually reached Granny Weatherwax's cottage. "'When shall we, too, meet again?' said Nanny Og. "'Listen,' said Granny Weatherwax. "'She's well out of it, do you hear? "'She'll be a lot happier as a queen.' "'I never said nothing.' "'said Nanny Og mildly. "'I know you never. "'I could hear you not saying anything. "'You've got the loudest silences I ever did hear "'from anyone who wasn't dead. "'See you about eleven o'clock, then?' "'Right.' "'The wind got up again as Granny walked along the track to her cottage. "'She knew she was on edge. "'There was just too much to do. "'She'd got Magrat sorted out, "'and Nanny could look after herself. "'But the lords and ladies, she hadn't counted on them. "'The point was... The point was that Granny Weatherwax had a feeling she was going to die. This was beginning to get on her nerves. Knowing the time of your death is one of those strange bonuses that comes with being a true magic user, and on the whole it is a bonus. Many a wizard has passed away happily drinking the last of his wine cellar and incidentally owing very large sums of money. Granny Weatherwax had always wondered how it felt, what it was that you suddenly saw looming up and what it turned out to be was a blankness. People think that they live life as a moving dot travelling from the past into the future, with memory streaming out behind them like some kind of mental cometary tale. But memory spreads out in front as well as behind. It's just that most humans aren't good at dealing with it, and so it arrives as premonitions, forebodings, intuitions and hunches. Witches are good at dealing with it. And to suddenly find a blank where these tendrils of the future should be has much the same effect on a witch as emerging from a cloud bank and seeing a team of Sherpas looking down on him does on an airline pilot. She'd got a few days, and then that was it. She'd always expected to have a bit of time to herself, get the garden in order, have a good clean-up around the place so that whatever witch took over wouldn't think she'd been a sloven, pick out a decent burial plot, and then spend some time sitting out in the rocking chair, doing nothing at all except looking at the trees and thinking about the past. Now, no chance. And other things were happening. Her memory seemed to be playing up. Perhaps this is what happened. Perhaps you just drained away towards the end, like old Nanny Gripes, who ended up putting the cat on the stove and the kettle out for the night. Granny shut the door behind her and lit a candle. There was a box in the dresser drawer. She opened it on the kitchen table and took out the carefully folded piece of paper. There was a pen and ink in there, too. After some thought, she picked up where she'd left off. And to my friend Githa Og, I leave my bed day, and the rag ruggy, the smith in bad arse made for me, and the matching jug and basin, and what's name set she always had her eye on, and my broomstick, what will be right as rain with a bit of work. To Magret Garlic, I leave the contentees elsewhere in this box, my silver tea service, with the milk jug in the shape of a humorous cow, what is an heirloom, also the clocky, what belonged to my mother, but I charge her always to keep it wound, for when the clocky stops... There was a noise outside. 
If anyone else had been in the room with her, Granny Weatherwax would have thrown open the door boldly, but she was by herself. She picked up the poker very carefully, moved surprisingly soundlessly to the door, given the nature of her boots, and listened intently. There was something in the garden. It wasn't much of a garden. There were the herbs and the soft fruit bushes, a bit of lawn, and, of course, the beehives. And it was open to the woods. The local wildlife knew better than to invade a witch's garden. Granny opened the door carefully. The moon was setting. Pale silver light turned the world into monochrome. There was a unicorn on the lawn. The stink of it hit her. Granny advanced, holding the poker in front of her. The unicorn backed away and pawed at the ground. Granny saw the future plain. She already knew the when. Now she was beginning to apprehend the how. So, she said under her breath, I knows where you came from, and you can damn well get back there. The thing made a feint at her, but the poker swung towards it. Can't stand the iron, eh? Well, just you trot back to your mistress and tell her that we know all about the iron in Lancre, and I knows about her. She's to keep away, understand? This is my place. Then it was moonlight. Now it was day. There was quite a crowd in what passed for Lankra's main square. Not much happened in Lankra anyway, and a duel between witches was a sight worth seeing. Granny Weatherwax arrived at a quarter to noon. Nanny Og was waiting on a bench by the tavern. She had a towel around her neck and was carrying a bucket of water in which floated a sponge. "'What's that for?' said Granny. "'Half time. And I done you a plate of oranges.' She held up the plate. Granny snorted. "'You look as if you could do with eating something anyway,' said Nanny. "'You don't look as if you've had anything today.' She glanced down at Granny's boots and the grubby hem of her long black dress. There were scraps of bracken and bits of heather caught on it. "'You daft old besom,' she hissed. "'What have you been doing?' "'I had to... "'You've been up at the stones, haven't you, "'trying to hold back the gentry?' "'Of course,' said Granny. "'Her voice wasn't faint. "'She wasn't swaying.' But her voice wasn't faint and she wasn't swaying, Nanny Og could see, because Granny Weatherwax's body was in the grip of Granny Weatherwax's mind. "'Someone's got to,' she added. "'You could have come and asked me.' "'You'd have talked me out of it,' Nanny Og leaned forward. "'You're all right, Esme?' "'Fine, I'm fine. Nothing wrong with me. All right?' "'Have you had any sleep at all?' she said. "'Well—' "'You haven't, have you? "'And then you think you can just stroll down here "'and confound this girl just like that?' "'I don't know,' said Granny Weatherwax. "'Nanny Og looked hard at her. "'You don't know, do you?' she said in a softer tone of voice. "'Oh, well, you you better sit down here before you fall down. "'Suck an orange. They'll be here in a few minutes.' "'No, she won't,' said Granny. "'She'll be late.' "'How do you know?' No good making an entrance if everyone isn't there to see you, is it? That's headology. In fact, the young coven arrived at twenty past twelve and took up station on the steps of the market pentangle on the other side of the square. Look at them, said Granny Weatherwax, all in black again. Well, we wear black too, said Nanny Og, the reasonable. Only because it's respectable and serviceable, said Granny morosely, not because it's romantic. <laughs> The lords and ladies might as well be here already. After some eye contact, Nanny Og ambled across the square and met Perdita in the middle. The young would-be witch looked worried under her makeup. 
She held a black lace handkerchief in her hands and was twisting it nervously. "'Morning, Mrs. Ogg,' she said. "'Afternoon, Agnes.' "'Um, what happens now?' Nanny Ogg took out her pipe and scratched her ear with it. "'Dunno. Up to you, I suppose.' "'Dear Amanda says, why does it have to be here and now?' "'So's everyone can see,' said Nanny Og. "'That's the point, ain't it? "'Nothing hole and corner about it. "'Everyone's got to know who's best at witchcraft. "'The whole town. "'Everyone sees the winner win and the loser lose. "'That way there's no argument, eh?' Perdita glanced towards the tavern. Granny Weatherwax had dozed off. "'Quietly confident.' said Nanny Og, crossing her fingers behind her back. Um, uh, what happens to the loser? said Perdita. Mm, nothing, really, said Nanny Og. Generally she leaves the place. You can't be a witch if people seen you beat. Dear Amanda says she doesn't want to hurt the old lady too much, said Perdita. Just teach her a lesson. That's nice. Esme's a quick learner. Um, I wish this wasn't happening, Mrs Og. That's nice. Dear Amanda says Mistress Weatherwax has got a very impressive stare, Mrs Ogg. That's nice. So the test is just staring, Mrs Ogg. Nanny put her pipe in her mouth. You mean the old first one to blink or look away challenge? Um, yeah. Right. Nanny thought about it and shrugged. Right. But we'd better do a magic circle first. Don't want anyone else getting hurt, do we? "'Do you mean using Scorpion runes or the triple invocation octogram?' said Perdita. Nanny Og put her head on one side. Uh, "'Never heard of them things, dear,' she said. "'I always does a magic circle like this.' She sidled crabwise away from the fat girl, dragging one toe in the dust. She edged around in a rough circle about fifteen feet across, still dragging her boot until she backed into Perdita. "'Sorry. There. Done it.' "'That's a magic circle?' Right. People can come to harm, else all kinds of magic zipping around the place when witches fight. But but you didn't chant or anything? No. There has to be a chant, doesn't there? Dunno. Never done one. Oh. I could sing you a comic song if you likes, said Nanny helpfully. Um, no. Um, Perdita had never heard Nanny sing, but news gets around. "'I like your black lace hanky,' said Nanny, not a bit abashed. "'Very good for not showing the bogies.' Perdita stared at the circle as though hypnotised. "'Um, shall we start, then?' "'Right.' Nanny Og scurried back to the bench and elbowed Granny in the ribs. "'Wake up!' Granny opened an eye. "'I weren't asleep, I was just resting me eyes. "'All you got to do is stare her down.' And at least she knows about the importance of the stare, then. <laughs> Who does she think she is? I've been staring at people all my life. Yes, that's what's bothering me. Oh, who's Nana's little boy, then? The rest of the Og clan had arrived. Granny Weatherwax personally disliked young Pusey. She disliked all small children, which is why she got on with them so well. In Pusey's case, she felt that no one should be allowed to wander around in just a vest, even if they were four years old, and the child had a permanently runny nose and ought to be provided with a handkerchief or failing that a cork. Nanny Og, on the other hand, was instant putty in the hands of any grandchild, even one as sticky as Pusey. "'Want, sweetie?' 
growled Pusey in that curiously deep voice some young children have. Just in a moment, my duck. I'm talking to the lady, Nanny Og fluted. What, sweetie, now? Bugger off, my precious. Uh, Nana's busy right this minute. Pusey pulled hard on Nanny Og's skirts. Now, sweetie, now. Granny Weatherwax leaned down until her impressive nose was about level with Pusey's gushing one. If you don't go away, she said gravely, I will personally rip your head off and fill it with snakes. There, said Nanny Og, there's a lot of poor children in Clatch that'd be grateful for a curse like that. Pusey's little face, after a second or two of uncertainty, split up into a pumpkin grin. Funny lady, he said. Tell you what, said Nanny, patting Pusey on the head and then absent-mindedly wiping her hand on her dress. You see them young ladies on the other side of the square? They've got lots of sweeties. Pusey waddled off. That's germ warfare, that is, said Granny Weatherwax. Come on, said Nanny. Our Jason's put a couple of chairs in the circle. You sure you're all right? I'll do. Perditon knit, traipsed across the road again. Er, uh, Mrs Ogg? Yes, dear? Er, uh, dear Amanda says you don't understand. She says they won't be trying to outstare one another. Magrat was bored. She'd never been bored when she was a witch. Permanently bewildered and overworked, yes, but not bored. She kept telling herself it'd probably be better when she really was queen, although she couldn't quite see how. In the meantime, she wandered aimlessly through the castle's many rooms, the swishing of her dress almost unheard above the background roar of the turbines of tedium. Hum, drum, hum, drum, hum, drum, hum, drum. She'd spent the whole morning trying to learn to do tapestry, because Millie assured her that's what queens did, and the sampler with its message, God's bless this house, was even now lying forlornly on her chair. In the long gallery were huge tapestries of ancient battles, done by previous bored, regal incumbents, and it was amazing how all the fighters had been persuaded to stay still long enough. And she'd looked at the many, many paintings of the queens themselves, all of them pretty, all of them well-dressed according to the fashion of their times, and all of them bored out of their tiny, well-shaped skulls. Finally, she went back to the solar. This was the big room on top of the main tower. In theory, it was there to catch the sun. It did. It also caught the wind and the rain. It was a sort of drift net for anything the sky happened to throw. She yanked on the bell-pull that in theory summoned a servant. Nothing happened. After a couple of further pulls, and secretly glad of the exercise, she went down to the kitchen. She would have liked to spend more time there. It was always warm, and there was generally someone to talk to. But noblesse oblige, queens had to live above stairs. End of CD 2